Part 4 Victory Chapter 19 Within the Ark For the first time in the trial, Hayes had to go in the dock accompanied by a guard. With a loud clang, the door was locked behind him. He stood as the jury entered, his heart thumping. The next few moments would determine his fate. He held his breath. Guilty, the foreman said. Then he said it seven more times. The jury unanimously convicted him on all eight counts. Hayes's face reddened. He shook his head, then sat down and buried his face in his hands. He looked at the jurors, willing them to meet his gaze. None did. Ty, sitting nearby, looked shell-shocked. Sentencing, Cook announced, would take place in a half hour. In the hallway outside, Hayes's family gathered around him. Beth, his half-sister, sobbed. Hayes wrapped his arm around her. He removed his watch, wallet, and wedding ring and handed them to Ty. "Will you wait for me?" he pleaded. She promised she would. She warned him not to do anything stupid. Then he returned to court, dragging a blue-green duffel bag packed with clothes and other belongings. He kissed Ty. Cook, vindicated by the verdict, announced the sentence. "14 years." It was one of the longest ever sentences for a British white-collar criminal, longer even than received by some murderers. Hayes looked terrified. He sat down and ran his hands through his hair. Fourteen years, he murmured, over and over. The judge read a long statement denouncing him for knowingly committing a crime, for exploiting his subordinates, for pulling out all the stops to manipulate the legal process. Plus, the judge declared, the conduct involved here must be marked out as dishonest and wrong, and a message sent to the world of banking accordingly. The reputation of LIBOR is important to the city as a financial center and to the banking industry in this country. Probity and honesty are essential, as is trust, which is based upon it. The LIBOR activities in which you played a leading part put all that in jeopardy. Ty, wide-eyed, gaped at her husband. She didn't cry. Plentiful tears would come the next day. We'll appeal, she mouthed to him. When Cook finished speaking, Hayes waved goodbye to his wife and mother. He was escorted to the ground floor of the courthouse, where he was locked in a cell with green painted bars. He felt numb. and for the first time thoroughly defeated an hour later a white van drove him to wandsworth prison a stone fortress built in 1851 and only recently retrofitted to include amenities like in-cell electricity and plumbing hayes stared out the van's window watching people starting their commutes home wishing that this were only a dream The contrast between Hayes's fate and those of his peers was stark. Six of his former brokers were preparing to stand trial, but most of his other colleagues were free and gainfully employed. Mirhat Alikulov was still in the finance industry in Tokyo, working as a broker. 
He partied with his former colleagues, including Paul Ellis, the Credit Suisse trader with whom Pierre had ganged up on Hayes. And he learned to box, participating in a charity tournament alongside the hairy Anthony Hayes, who took the opportunity to temporarily shed the Abo moniker and be rechristened as the Ape Man. Naomichi Tamura, who over Christmas eight years earlier had instructed Hayes to do all he could to move LIBOR in a helpful direction, until recently continued to work at UBS. Mike Pieri disappeared to Australia, but remained a free man. Chris Checkeray was at a hedge fund. Hayato Hoshino and Andrew Thursfield and Burak Celtic and Lawrence Porter all kept working at Citigroup. Holger Seeger, who had encouraged Roger Darren and others to collaborate with traders like Hayes, left UBS and eventually landed a job at a small bank in the picturesque Swiss city of Lenzburg. Darren, wanted by the United States, couldn't leave Switzerland without risk of being arrested, but he was ensconced in his native country's financial technology industry. David Casterton remained a top ICAP executive. In one of his final acts as prime minister in 2016, David Cameron nominated his old pal Michael Spencer to become a member of the House of Lords. The appointment ended up being blocked. And of the two executives whose names had appeared on a draft version of Hayes' charges? Well, they were doing better than ever. Karsten Kengeter, who as co-head of UBS's investment bank, had pleaded over and over with Hayes to stay, partly because of his priceless connections to LIBOR setters, was no longer with UBS. Footnote. Ken Geeter says he wasn't aware of wrongdoing at UBS. End footnote. Now he was the chief executive of Deutsche Börse, the big German stock exchange. As Hayes's trial got underway, Ken Geeter unveiled an ambitious expansion plan for the company, including buying a large foreign exchange trading platform, the company's biggest purchase in a decade. Then, in March 2016, he announced an even more audacious deal to merge with the London Stock Exchange, one of the world's most prominent markets. Ken Geeter would be crowned CEO of the sprawling new institution. Brian McCappen, who, in the most charitable version of events, had done nothing to stop Hayes and Checkeray from manipulating LIBOR, never left Citigroup. After Japanese regulators slapped the bank's wrist in late 2011, Citigroup reassigned him to Singapore and then New York. He cycled through some low-profile jobs there. Then, as if by clockwork, when Hayes was locked up, McCappen was promoted. His new job, head of institutional sales in the foreign exchange business, sounded obscure, but it represented a ringing public endorsement of a man whose reputation had been badly tarnished. Announcing his promotion, Citigroup described McCappen as a valued employee. Even Angela Knight, who presided over the British Bankers Association during its inept management of the LIBOR scandal, landed on her feet. She left the BBA for a job at an association advocating on behalf of the United Kingdom's energy industry. Then, in late 2015, her longtime contacts in the British government 
decided she was just the person for a plum post advising the Chancellor of the Exchequer on how to simplify the country's tax code. A parliamentary committee grudgingly approved her appointment, although it noted it was unimpressed with her tenure at the BBA. The Bank of England's governor, Mervyn King, retired and in spring 2016 landed a job as a senior advisor at Hayes's former employer, Citigroup. Meanwhile, the central bank plodded along with a years-long effort to come up with ways to de-link derivatives from LIBOR. The idea was that if those ubiquitous financial contracts, representing trillions and trillions of dollars, were no longer tied to an error-prone theoretical interest rate, well, they would be more reliable. The central bank appointed a veteran of more than 20 years to lead the effort as well as to come up with ways to clean up other markets prone to manipulation. The wiry, floppy-haired man, with a fondness for jogging and golf, had previously done stints at the International Monetary Fund in Washington, during which he'd listened to his nerdy, socially awkward nephew talk excitedly about his interest in becoming a star trader. And as King's private secretary, where he'd helped communicate his boss's laissez-faire attitude about LIBOR. Since then, the man had climbed the Bank of England's ranks and become its executive director in charge of supervising markets. His name was Chris Salmon, the man responsible for dealing with the LIBOR scandal's fallout and for reducing the odds that another scandal took place, was the uncle of the scandal's convicted ringleader. Banished from the banking industry, Alexis Stenforce had reassessed his life. Within a few months of Merrill Lynch firing him in 2009, he decided to pursue one of his earlier interests, academic research. He enrolled in a University of London PhD program. His research topic was, what else, LIBOR manipulation. Eight years earlier, Stenforce had started noticing some fishy stuff going on with the benchmark. Now he had a chance to blow the whistle. His studies at times were surreal. Once, in a library researching his dissertation, he leafed through a study about rogue traders. In the middle of the paper was a table listing rogue traders dating back to the early 1990s. Near the top of the list, a name leapt out, Alexis Stenforce. Stenforce didn't view himself as a rogue trader. He had just made some mistakes within a system that more or less encouraged such mistakes. Stenforce typed out a fruitless letter to the journal's publisher protesting his inclusion in the list. He completed his dissertation, earned his doctorate, and landed a teaching position at the University of Southampton. Eventually, he emerged as a sought-after speaker for university students and fellow researchers, a unique pairing of academic expert and industry veteran of theoretical and real-world experience. Stenforce, more introspective than most, had spent two years regularly visiting a psychotherapist, trying to understand what had motivated him to lie and cheat. Seven years later, he still hadn't figured it out. Stenforce was glued to the coverage of Hayes' trial. He and his former brokers, these were guys Stenforce knew, guys like him, and now they were staring at years behind bars. 
At one point, the prosecution questioned Hayes about when he and Farr arranged their first switch trade and were hunting for someone to take the other side. They had turned to Stenforce, who had demurred. Farr had asked Stenforce if the trade seemed dodgy, and he had said yes. Now, in court, the ethical judgment of Stenforce was being presented to the jury as a sign that Hayes and Farr knew that what they were doing was improper. It wasn't funny, but Stenforce couldn't help but laugh. On a drizzly morning in January 2016, Stenforce arrived at a Victorian townhouse in central London to deliver a lecture. His audience was a group of about 30 undergraduate finance students visiting from an Iowa university. Their goateed professor, who in his spare time was trying to launch his own hedge fund, had lined up several guest speakers to give his students a taste of the real world of finance. Most of the students, dressed in tracksuits and college sweatshirts, didn't seem very interested. They sat, sleepy-eyed, at desks under an ornately molded white plaster ceiling. Looking a bit gaunt, Stenforce had dressed up in a suit and tie. He used a laptop to project a slideshow titled Risk Takers, Rogue Traders, and Rotten Apples. Stenforce presented himself as a banking industry refugee, although he proudly noted that the prior year, the British regulator had lifted a ban on him working in the industry. He tried to explain what it meant to be a trader. It wasn't all about making money. It was about risk-taking. The adrenaline rush was as much a goal as the fat paycheck. It's addictive, he noted. Then he got to his main theme. Rogue traders and other banking miscreants are products of the system. Toss aside everything you've learned about economics, Stenforce advised. The simple, clean world of rational individuals and profit-maximizing institutions. That's not a realistic reflection of the financial industry. The Hunger Games is more like it. Everyone is acting to enhance his own interest. When other people are no longer useful, you stab them in the back. It's not necessarily about money, it's about winning, he explained. Normal systems of morals and ethics don't apply. He recounted how he and his colleagues kept trading as if nothing had happened when the planes hit the Twin Towers and how traders openly looked down on their lesser colleagues. You respect fighters. You respect race car drivers. You do not respect salespeople. You do not respect those who don't take risks. The phenomenon of rogue trading can be understood in part through sociology. It's a rebellion against institutional controls that deny individuals opportunities for self-actualization, he asserted. In other words, the cutthroat system encouraged amoral, nasty behavior. There was a stinging critique of the world Stenforce had inhabited and that some of these students presumably planned to enter. His lecture concluded after an hour, and he invited the students to ask questions. A hand shot up in the front row. It belonged to a spiky-haired, bespectacled Asian-American. While his classmates hadn't bothered to stifle their yawns as Stenforce spoke, this 21-year-old had remained attentive, his eyes stuck on the lecturer and his slideshow. Now, called on by Stenforce, 
He cut right to the chase. What can I do to become a traitor? Hayes was transferred from the dungeon-like Wandsworth to a prison called Loudham Grange. It was a destination for murderers, drug and weapons traffickers, and violent criminals with decades-long sentences. But it had a reputation for being relatively clean and safe. It was situated in the middle of farmland. Tractors were parked around the prison's outskirts, and inside its 15-foot cement walls, birds could be heard chirping. Prisoners were permitted to wear their own clothes and to spend hours roaming the complex. Hayes's cell was small but cozy, with a metal bed, a small TV, an electric tea kettle, and a metal desk against the wall below a barred window. Best of all, there was a phone that he could pay a few pence per minute to use. Each week, he exhausted his allowance on several times a day phone calls to Ty. Hayes drew comfort from the routine of the prison day, with each activity slotted into a regular time period and little margin for surprise or disruption. He taught math classes and read books. In the prison's grand hierarchy of crimes, being a financial crook was considered much less objectionable than offenses like pedophilia or violence against women or even selling drugs, and so he didn't have problems with the other inmates. Some became his friends. His closest pal was an inmate convicted of murder for bludgeoning to death his financial advisor. Nicknames were popular in prison, as they had been in Hayes's previous world. He no longer went by Rain Man or Tommy Chocolate or Kid Asperger. Now he was the banker and the Lion of Libor. Inmates crowded into his cell to watch TV segments about him, cheering when pundits questioned the severity of his punishment. At first, to make the long sentence seem more manageable, Hayes divided each day into 8,640 ten-second increments. Later, tired of that repetition, he split the entirety of his sentence into six-month blocks and then started counting down the hours and days of each slice. Meanwhile, he memorized the prison rulebook. He learned that he was permitted to have a small rug in his cell, a privilege that apparently hadn't been noticed by many other prisoners. When winter came and the temperatures dropped, prisoners padded into his cell, removed their shoes and socks, and luxuriated in his small carpet softness. Hayes didn't want their company so much as their physical warmth. He figured the exchange of the rug's coziness for their body heat was a fair trade. On the frequent occasions that he felt his anger boiling up, a fury so intense that it rendered him unable to focus on anything else, he would go to the gym. Before long, he had bulging biceps. When the gym wasn't an option, he would sit down in his cell and whip through a math workbook. The numerical exercises were a source of calming familiarity in his scary new world. Ty tried to keep her family intact. She told Joshua that Daddy had done something that certain people thought was wrong, even though Mommy and Daddy didn't think it was wrong, and that Daddy now had to go away for a while to sort the mess out. Joshua, the spitting image of his father, took to asking whether Mommy would leave too. At dinner each night, Ty called Hayes in his cell 
and put him on speakerphone so that the family could at least retain a semblance of normalcy. Before bed, Joshua got in the habit of casting a get-daddy-home magic spell. The SFO continued to try to confiscate the family's assets. A court eventually ordered Hayes to pay 878,806 pounds, roughly $1.3 million. The old rectory went back on the market. A Goldman Sachs banker snapped it up on the cheap. For months, Hayes, Ty, and their families clung to the hope of a successful appeal of his conviction and sentence. His lawyers argued that Judge Cook, who had retired after Hayes's case, had improperly excluded certain evidence, such as Pete the Greek's exoneration by the regulatory committee. And they claimed that the 14-year sentence was excessive, especially considering Hayes' diagnosis with Asperger's. An appeals court agreed to hear Hayes' claim and assign a prestigious three-judge panel, including the highest-ranking member of the English judiciary, to preside. But the judges rejected the effort to get the conviction overturned. They did shave three years off his sentence, which the court said was longer than was necessary. Hayes and Ty, however, were crestfallen. They had convinced themselves that perhaps the punishment would be chopped in half. His landmark victory validated, Chowla headed back to the Suffolk courthouse. Hayes's six former brokers, Daryl Reed, Colin Goodman, Danny Wilkinson, Terry Farr, Jim Gilmore, and Noel Cryan, were on trial for their alleged roles as Hayes's co-conspirators. The trial took place in the same courtroom where Hayes was tried. The defendants were crammed into the glass-enclosed dock, where a jovial atmosphere prevailed most days. They joked to each other during breaks. Wilkinson's family brought bags of hard candies that Farr, his shirt tails dangling, distributed to his fellow defendants. He and Gilmore scooted outside for cigarettes at every opportunity. Cryan spent his spare time eating potato chips and completing newspaper crossword puzzles. Reed burned through crime novels. Chowla projected an air of confidence. Who could fault him, given the comprehensive nature of his victory against Hayes? Much of the evidence that he presented against the brokers was the same that he had deployed against Hayes. The same emails, chat transcripts, phone recordings, spreadsheets, and charts. But there were some crucial differences this time. For starters, none of the brokers had ever admitted doing anything wrong, unlike Hayes, who had spent dozens of hours in the SFO's confessional Coombe recording studio. And the brokers' lawyers were determined to strike a more aggressive, indignant stance than the soft-spoken Hawes had used in the previous trial. The crux of their defense was that the world the prosecution was describing to the jury a world in which everyone was expected to play by the rules, where transparency mattered, where honesty and fair dealing were sacrosanct, was a fantasy. The financial industry was not a polite, rules-bound, ethical place. It was a no-holds-barred culture where brokers were actively encouraged to manipulate and lie to their clients. And, the brokers argued, that's exactly what they'd been doing. To haze. One after another, they climbed onto the stand and insisted that it was all a ruse. 
not only their assurances to Hayes that they were doing everything they could to help him, but also the emails and instant messages they zinged among each other that appeared to confirm that they were, in fact, trying to help Hayes. It was, they said, nothing more than an elaborate scheme to con the gullible Hayes into handing them his lucrative business. Why didn't the brokers just say, no thanks, when Hayes sought their help manipulating LIBOR? Well, they answered, clearly the prosecution didn't understand who Tom Hayes was. He was more than a giant presence in the market. He was an unreasonable, monstrous man. Cryan called him a psycho. Wilkinson gleefully recounted, yet one more time, the shepherd's pie-in-the-bath legend. Farr and Reed both told the jury about the verbal abuse showered on them by their explosive client. Saying no to this guy was not an attractive option. And it was less bad to lie to Hayes than to actually, God forbid, lie about LIBOR. The truth was even more ironic. In maintaining that they had been lying and therefore hadn't acted dishonestly, the brokers appeared to be, well, lying. A rich trove of documentary evidence showed the brokers not only telling Hayes that they were helping him, but also coordinating among themselves and with other traders to carry out Hayes' requests. Of course, there were exceptions, such as when Reed counseled his London colleagues not to tell Hayes about Goodman's run-throughs, or, if Hayes ever asked, to say that they had spoken to traders at rival banks when in fact they hadn't. But there was little aside from the broker's testimony on the stand, which appeared to contradict the written record, to substantiate the idea that they hadn't been participating in the scheme alongside Hayes. The SFO's staff wasn't helping Chowla this time. Under cross-examination, one of the agency's investigators, Paul Chadwick, acknowledged that the SFO had screwed up some of the dates it had included in the charges against Goodman. It turned out he'd been on vacation on those days. Later, Chadwick admitted to Cryan's lawyer that the SFO only got around to interviewing the guys on Tullett's cash desk, whom Cryan would have asked for help on Hayes' behalf, if he did, in fact, ask anyone for help, after the broker's trial was already underway. A couple of jurors shook their heads in disbelief. Ty handed in her resignation at Shearman and Sterling and landed a new job at a smaller law firm nearby, where she figured the workload would be lighter, a crucial concession to her new life as a single parent. Another law firm refused to hire her because of her husband's crimes. One morning in January 2016, during a week off between jobs, she took the train into London and headed to the Hatton Garden Jewelry District, where Hayes, years earlier, had purchased their wedding rings. This time, Ty was getting their valuables, her diamond ring, both of their Rolexes, appraised before they were handed over to the SFO. Afterward, she decided to stop by the Suffolk Courthouse to check in on the brokers. A day earlier, the jury had been sent out to deliberate. Now the waiting game had begun, and she knew from experience how tense and miserable that process was. Ty had been back to the courthouse a couple of times since Hayes' conviction. 
The SFO's proceedings seeking the confiscation of their assets had occurred just down the hallway from courtroom two. Every time she went there, it was like re-entering a nightmare. Walking down the same street that she and Hayes had traversed day after day, holding hands as the photographers tracked them, she would feel a lump rising up in her throat and would stifle a sob. On this January morning, Ty went looking for Reed, whom she still considered a friend. She found him in the cafeteria reading. They had barely started talking when the courthouse loudspeakers barked, summoning the brokers back to courtroom two. After a day of deliberating, the jury had reached its verdict. The brokers shuffled into the dock. Farr managed a wan smile at his wife Claire and son Sam, then buried his head in his hands. Wilkinson had been at home. Days earlier, he'd suffered a minor stroke and hadn't returned to court since, pouring himself a glass of wine, when his wife called to say there was a verdict. He had rushed into London wearing an untucked short-sleeved shirt, his face a dark, sweaty red. Gilmore, too, felt beads of sweat forming on his scalp and neck as he waited for the jury to enter. Time seemed to stand still. Four guards, their keys jingling, entered the dock and locked the door. Ty took a seat in the courtroom. The jury entered. Wilkinson's mother grabbed Ty's arm. My boy, she murmured over and over. And then came the verdicts. Not guilty. One by one, each broker was acquitted. With a war cry, Farr tore out of the dock and embraced Claire and Sam, who both were sobbing. That's four and a half years of my life, he murmured, choking on tears. On the way out of the courtroom, two jurors pumped their fists in the direction of the defendants, a motion of solidarity. On the courthouse steps, a juror hugged one of the broker's wives. Thank you, she whispered. Footnote. The Justice Department would later drop its charges against the three former ICAP brokers. End footnote. And so it was. In November 2015, two Robobank traders, Anthony Allen and Anthony Conti, were tried in federal court in New York for their roles allegedly manipulating LIBOR. Their colleague, Paul Robson, had testified against them. The trial lasted a few weeks, and the jury eventually convicted the two Brits. Allen was sentenced to two years in prison. Conti's sentence was one year. But of all the other former traders who had come under the legal microscope, including David Nichols, the Deutsche Bank manager who'd brushed away suggestions that LIBOR could be manipulated, and who, as of 2016, was under investigation by the Justice Department, None of them were accused of being part of Hayes's vast ring. Tom Hayes had never fit in. Now, as always, he was the outsider. Ty called Hayes's lawyers and delivered the news. As it happened, they were at Loudham Grange, about to sit down with her husband. They met in a cubby-sized room off the main visitor's area where tearful wives and squealing children were being reunited temporarily with their husbands and fathers. 
Guests were allowed to buy treats for inmates at a small canteen, and Hayes sipped a bottle of strawberry milk as his lawyers talked him through some paperwork. They didn't tell him of the acquittals until they'd completed all their other business. Hayes was engulfed with emotions when he heard. Here he was, locked up in jail, with most of his worldly possessions being confiscated by the government. And in London, his supposed conspirators had just been let off the hook. On the other hand, their acquittals were a token form of vindication. After all, these were many of his alleged confederates. It felt good knowing that the SFO and David Green and Mukul Chawla had suffered an embarrassing defeat. And by not sticking with his original plan to cooperate with the SFO and testify against his former brokers, he had helped these men remain free. I can look at myself knowing six families are complete, in a small part because of me, Hayes wrote to an acquaintance. He described the brokers, despite their occasional dishonesty, as basically good guys. Hayes still didn't grasp what had really happened. These friends who were not friends, these bosses who now claimed not to be bosses, together they had just engineered their greatest trade of all, Hayes for their own freedom. He was the genius, the university man, the millionaire the star. And he was the fool. Most of them had their money. His would be seized. They had their liberty. He was in prison. Yes, there had been a spider network. Hayes still didn't realize that in the end, he'd been the fly. The brokers and their families and lawyers decamped to a nautical-themed pub, the Shipwright's Arms, down the street from the courthouse. The mood was giddy. The fastidious, upper-crust barristers shed their wigs and loosened their collars and before long were slurring their words. They gleefully recounted the trial's highlights, how the SFO investigators had looked foolish under cross-examination, how Wilkinson on the stand had angrily denounced the SFO's tactics, the look on Chala's face as the verdicts were announced. An instant consensus among the lawyers had formed about the trial's crucial turning point. It was when the jurors learned of Hayes's 14-year sentence. Surely, the lawyers reasoned, the jurors had rejected the idea of sending these six men to a similar fate. Cryan had his own theory. The jurors could tell that the defendants were just working-class guys, not dudes who went to exclusive schools and drove fancy cars, and quaffed expensive champagnes. He paused, thinking about that for a moment. We actually did drink quite a lot of champagne, he blurted, and we'll be drinking more tonight. He tilted his head back and laughed maniacally. But the reasons didn't matter. It was finally over. Gilmore, standing alone and looking dazed, fantasized about the vacations he would take once he got his confiscated passport back. Forget about all his other problems, such as his precarious finances. A huge weight had lifted. Above the pub's blue-painted entrance, a coat of arms displayed the establishment's motto, Within the Ark, Safe Forever. Not even the fickle gods of the sea 
the menacing forces that Alikolov had warned about when he recited Hector's line in the movie Troy, could touch these guys now. Before long, Farr was drunkenly shouting and spilling Guinness on the slick wooden floor. Then Wilkinson waddled in. Freedom! he thundered, his arms hoisted above his head in a V. The brokers roared, and someone handed him a pint of beer. The party was just getting started. This is Mike Chamberlain. We hope you have enjoyed this unabridged production of The Spider Network, the wild story of a math genius, a gang of backstabbing bankers, and one of the greatest scams in financial history by David Enrich. Produced by Elgin Productions. Executive producer, Katie Ostroka. Text copyright 2017 by David Enrich. Production copyright 2017 by HarperCollins Publishers. All rights reserved. Thank you for listening.